the 10K Media Podcast. Uh, in this episode, I have with me Charity Majors, the CTO and co-founder of Honeycomb. Charity, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. This, this should be fun. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, I want to talk to you about. I've, I've been following you um, since I was the head of comms at Datadog and you know, Honeycomb kind of came out guns blazing and, and hasn't stopped since. And uh, uh, I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. I, I, I uh, yeah, guns blazing is, is an interesting way of putting it. You know, I didn't set out to make enemies in the industry. Um, I just felt like there was a lot of stuff to say. Um, and, and in retrospect, I think, um, you know, a little bit of more awareness might have been a little bit helpful, but here we are, it's okay. No, well, actually, I think a lot of people admire your outspokenness with your technical opinions. And I want to get into that actually a little bit. You know, for me, you've been interviewed about observability and all these things uh, a lot of times. Um, and we will get into some of that stuff. But, you know, as a media person, I am interested in storytelling and, and things like that. And uh, so, so maybe we can give people a little bit of insight into the way you think about things um, that you yeah. don't normally get into. Yeah, the storytelling part, you know, it's it's so interesting to talk about that because, you know, we had to start out by building a storage engine from scratch and all this stuff. And yet the technical stuff that we had to do did not stretch me, did not challenge me in the same way that trying to figure out how, just trying to figure out how to talk about what we were doing did. You know, it, it, it was so challenging. We knew that what we were doing wasn't monitoring. You know, we knew that it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't really for ops people. It wasn't really, you know, that post facto stuff, but there, there wasn't really any, 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 there weren't any terms, there weren't any words for us to talk about what we were doing until, you know, I Googled observability like six months in, right? And I was like, oh my God, this is what we're trying to do. And a lot of things totally clicked, but even after that, you know, I remember just staying up night after night, just trying to figure out how to talk about what we were doing. And it was so incredibly difficult. I, I have mad respect for people who, who do product marketing now. Yeah, well, let's let's follow this line. I, I, I think this could be interesting to people uh, and maybe even helpful. I mean, the you knew that what you were doing was related to monitoring, right? There, there's synergy. I had this this fundamental like transformative experience, right? Of of laboring through like at Parse, right? I was responsible for keeping it reliable, and we were going down every day because we, we were this massive, you know, multi-tenant platform, and <clears throat> you know, every day a new app would hit the top ten in the iTunes store, you know, and you couldn't predict it; it would come out of nowhere and would just sideswipe us, and and you know, we were trying to use any monitoring tool, any logging tool, and, and none of them would help, right? Because they all were, they, they were built for systems that were failing in predictable ways. And it wasn't until I tried using this tool at Facebook called Scuba, which was butt ugly, just like aggressively hostile to users, but it let you slice and dice on, you know, in near real time and in high cardinality dimensions. And, and like the time that it took us to understand what was going on, just dropped like a rock, right? From from days, open-ended, God knows if we'd ever understand it, to, you know, seconds, 
not even minutes, like seconds, like every time. And it wasn't even an engineering problem anymore. It was a, it was like a support problem, right? And 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 I, I had this experience that it was like almost religious, right? Like I had experienced what was not possible had been made possible. But then figuring out if anyone else needed to have this experience or how to translate it or how to explain it to people, how to how to how to find the words to make it resonate with their experience, or mm. or or maybe this was even just an experience that was just mine, right? And, and that it was a niche thing that nobody else needed to, you know, needed to know about. Like that was a real open question for years there. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think that's it's you know, probably relatively safe to assume, although hindsight is 2020, that, that if you had such a, you know, an experience with that, that, that other people would too. And so, you know, in comes Honeycomb um, to offer it right as a service for, for other people, maybe just because we, we glossed over some things there that might be good for people to, to understand um, who may not be as familiar with your history. So you were a systems engineer for a long time. And then in around 2012, you were the first sort of um, infrastructure engineer at, at Parse, which then got bought by Facebook. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And then did you just use Scuba <laughs> at Facebook or were you actually on the Scuba team? No, I, you know, we were very separate from Facebook. We, we were, you know, sort of cautiously merging streams of data a little bit at a time. Um, and, and, and they were pushing so many things on us. And we got so jaded. We were just like, oh, no, like stay away. Like your tools are for your problems. We know how to solve our problems. And it was kind of an accident that we actually, like one of my intern, like actually just like picked up some data sets and started playing with them because I was just totally over it. I was just like, you built these tools for running a very large website. They have nothing to do with, you know, my like multi you know, this, this highly, my multi-tenant platform that we're trying to build. Um, but, you know, the data doesn't lie. Like we started feeding some data sets into it and suddenly our lives just got a lot easier. So fast forward to, it's one thing to, to have an aha moment and to realize the value of a new thing. And then even to try and start a company around it. But how do you attribute how much it caught fire, right? Like if you fast forward to today, observability is probably one of the, you know, hottest keywords in the DevOps universe. <laughs> and a lot of companies have sort of- Oh yeah, everybody's like, we do it. it too. We've got observability right. too, right? Which right. is a whole different problem. Like the first three years I was traveling around the world, I was traveling 50% of the time, just like trying to convince anyone to care. Right. And then it felt like overnight it shifted to like the battle was no longer, you should care. The battle was, there's a real definition here. Like there, if, if you care about the definition of observability, there are some real technical prerequisites that you need to care about like high cardinality, high dimensionality and all these things. You can't just go, oh yeah, me too. We're also trying to understand our systems too. You know, it right. was, but I, I think that the reason it, it is caught fire is because there's, you know, it used to be that we had the app and the database. And if all else failed, you could attach a debugger to the, the application code and just step right through it, right? Well, now almost nobody has a monolith, right? To, to, to some extent, small or large, we've blown up the monolith uh, and we now have many services or some services. Every time that your request comes in and hops from one service to the next, you discard all of the context 
and and your ability to debug just like starts over from scratch. And and you've got people down with hundreds of services, right? And and they're just bouncing hop, 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 hop. And and you cannot, like it, it's it's very discontinuous. Like your tools work for you until they don't. <laughs> and and it can feel like very suddenly, like you wake up one day and holy shit, you no longer have any ability to understand your systems. And it's terrifying and, it, and it's proliferating because if you look at all of the big trends in technology, you know, whether it's, you know, containers and schedulers or Kubernetes, whether it's, you know, the, the long tail of devices that we have in mobile, whether it's, you know, the proliferation of services or the proliferation of storage systems, like all of these things, and I should probably stop and de define high cardinality here for, for a second, which is, you know, imagine you've got a collection of 100 million users. Um, well, the highest possible cardinality data will be anything that's a unique ID. So like your social security number, high cardinality. First name, last name, very high cardinality, although somewhat lower. Gender, pretty low cardinality. And species equals human is presumably very low cardinality, right? So we've spent all this time, like decades, building these these systems with metrics, which a metric is just a number with some tags attached to it, um, that were really optimized for low cardinality systems, you know? And, and, and meanwhile, the most interesting, the most relevant debugging information is always going to be the high cardinality data. You know, if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, you don't really care about the tag that says it's silver and pointy, right? You care about the tag that's got like, maybe the, the, the unique ID of the place where it was manufactured and the date and time when, when it was manufactured and you know the batch ID, like those are the ones that really help you like just track down like what is my user's experience, right? Um, so TLDR, I think it's taken off because it was an idea that you know it's time had come because so many people are experiencing this, this pain of the tools just don't work for them anymore. You know, and, and we've been patching over this for so long using human blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like the the joke is always, well, the best debugger is always going to be the person who's been there the longest because they've seen the most, right? They've experienced the most outages. They they can do the best pattern matching. You know, if you if you've got your dashboards, they can look at it, they can stroke their beard and size it up and go. I bet it's Redis, you know, even if it doesn't say Redis. Any, and I love being that dude. Like, I love being that person who's just like the wizard who can like tease out meaning from dashboards. But in fact, that's a really bad pattern. It doesn't scale well, right? And it only works if you're experiencing the same things over and over, which we're getting better as an industry at not doing that, right? Yeah. Like nowadays, anytime you get paged, it should be something new. It should be right. something novel, right? Yeah. You shouldn't just be like, oh, that again, right? And 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 yet like our tools are still built for the days when when those were those were the problems that we had. Yeah, so. there's interesting synergy here between um uh, you know, I speak a lot with the CEO of Cantaba and the incident response space and kind of has this this similar idea that if, if it can be predicted in advance, then a lot of times should be able to be remediated. Exactly. automatically also right and and the sev ones really should be you know like net new unexpected um yeah, always events and there's this idea that and i want to get your opinion here deeper in a second because there is this idea that monitoring is sort of more passive and and observability is more active 
Um, but before jumping into those distinctions, because I think there's a lot to unpack there, were you conscious, getting back to like the, the maybe the unique angle that that this interview will give people that others haven't? Because I remember being at Datadog, and you know, uh, I was actually managing their their social at the time, and and seeing the tags from you, and and the the, the interesting threads, and maybe even a little the poking the bear type of thing. Um, but I actually think if you're a startup and you're trying to create, you know, some some breathing room for yourself, the thing to do is punch up. Right. And at the same time, become friends and be friendly with lateral competitors who are trying to push for the same movement as you. Right. And doing both can be a little tricky, but I think it actually makes a lot of sense. And really, Datadog was doing it, too. Like, they'd punch up at why Amazon's CloudWatch was right. insufficient. And, you know, so everybody plays everybody this. Yeah, everybody does it. But, but some people do it better than others because um, some people are afraid of being outspoken. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, there's bigger companies that maybe they want to partner with and they're afraid of, of offending them. And then there's also companies that, cause like you and Lightstep are good friends and, and yeah. all put, you, you guys agree fundamentally on a lot of things, yeah. but I'm, you know, I, I talk to a lot of startups and there are other companies that are in that same boat, both small or trying to really start a thing and they don't talk to each other at all because they feel like right. they're eating each other's lunch. But I think right. you actually really hit oh. that balance well of punching we really up. Respect them. Yeah, we really respect them. Yeah. Like, and I think that, and I, and I really respect Datadog too. Like, I don't want to, like, I feel like Datadog has built the last best monitoring tool that will ever be built, right? Like, it is an, it is the apex of that technology. And I, and I have a lot of respect for that. I, I get pissy when when they start try to claim that they're that they're like boiling the entire ocean right that they are also the best for this other stuff that they're that they're not right that's where I get irritated but like I have massive respect for 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 Datadog and and like most of our competitors um but were you conscious I think this is the interesting piece of it like I'm as a media person yeah. like sort of claiming that I think the way you punched up at incumbents but made friends with lateral players is the perfect way to do it as a startup. But were you conscious of that, or was that just naturally how you were feeling? And it wasn't. I don't wasn't think really... I was very conscious of it. I, 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 I was just trying to be truthful. You know, um, I, I'm an engineer. <laughs> I'm an ops engineer, and ops engineers hate software. Like we just do. Like we hate all software pretty much equally. And so it's pretty easy for me to put my cynic hat on. But like, I, I've always felt like our enemy is not any other product. Our enemy is, you know the really painful way that software is being developed today. You know, I've seen it, I've seen that it can be better. And I just, I am so conscious of so much of people's life force being, you know, just drained away by being paged constantly. You know, they're getting burned out. They're, 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 they're not living their best life because they're, you know, they're just spending so much time on bullshit because they can't see what the fuck they're doing, you know? And, and, and I, I feel like I've, I've really tried to keep that in, in mind that the, the enemy isn't any, any of our competitors. The enemy is the inefficiencies. The enemy is, you know, and that we're all kind of trying to, to solve that problem. Cause, cause there's, there's a trap in whenever you, even when you're punching up, I think, you know, cause people, engineers who have found, who have had their real problem solved by, you know, a Datadog or a New Relic or a Splunk, you know, if, if you punch too hard, at those solutions, you're going to lose them. And I don't want anyone to feel stupid for choosing, you know, a Datadog or a Splunk or anything like that. I don't, 
I, I want them to feel like it can be better because it can. Totally. I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess, you know, and I, as someone who's, you know, part of my job is to um, establish founders as thought leaders. And for some, it's more natural than others to share their opinions and be vocal and, and outspoken. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes you've got to learn that that's just not someone's personality per right. se. Right. Um, and, and sort of work with what you got. And some are better at writing like long engineering blog posts and, and, and don't want to be tweeting and like, you know, but I think, I mean, what, what would you say there though? To I mean, you obviously have to come from a place of authority, but I think it, it's kind of assumed sort of a priori that if you're starting a company about something, you should ha- feel confident that you're coming from a place of authority, mm-hmm. right? And, and then it logically follows that that maybe founders shouldn't be so afraid to share their opinions or even uh, offend people? I, I feel like there there is a, a real thirst for honest, honesty and earnestness, you know? And, and you don't even have to be right as long as you're being honest about how far you are confident in, in, in what you're saying, you know? Like, I, I, I do think that like, if Twitter didn't exist, Honeycomb wouldn't exist, which is a funny thing you know and to this day like most of our opportunities are inbounds and they're just people who have been following me and Liz for years and and listening to us um and and I also get that that doesn't work for everyone and I I also think that it wouldn't have worked for me if if I had tried five years earlier I think that I went through a a phase of becoming more comfortable speaking you know like I I gave my first talk it was like a 10-minute thing at AWS reInvent in like 20 11 and I fucking bombed and it was terrible. It was humiliating. I was so embarrassed that I just like, I leaned really into that pain. I, and I gave a talk anywhere that would have me for like the next three years. And I got a lot, a lot better at it. Right. And I could, I, if I hadn't gone through that excruciating painful process, you know, I don't, it's, it's, it's a skill that can be learned like any other is I guess what I'm saying. And, um, and, and you do have to do what's authentic to you, but you also shouldn't like, assume that who you are you're not as you're not it you don't exist in stasis right like you you can you can you can start talking about something and then you can build up you can feed off the energy when people start responding like all the things that i have you know that have become like my my pillars of you know testing and production and 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 um you know cicd and, and all these things you know they were real, i sprayed like God knows how many dozens of shit, you know, out into Twitter. And these are the ones that people responded to it. So I kind of leaned into it and, and dug, there was more there, right? Like, it's it's not like I woke up one day just understanding that people would respond to this. You just put oh, it up and see it, what it works. It's kind of surprising how, if you do it right, tweets can actually be like dipping your toe into the water and seeing yeah. what is, is, is resonating with people. Yeah. Friday deploys, man. That oh, was, yeah. I've seen, I've seen Wild those. Uh, I think anyone who's followed you have seen those, uh, uh, those debates plenty, plenty of times. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where like you say something inflammatory, people explode, you, you, you stop and you pause and you go, am I really right about this? And then, you know, you, you and then you have to be honest about it. You, I, I, I don't just want to like start wildfires. I want to make people think about what is the balance how much of my engineering cycles am I dedicating to forward progress versus to, you know, the process and the, the digestion, you know, of, of shipping software. Yeah. And yeah. Totally. No, well, there's this idea that, you know, I mean, 
a good argument is one that can, that can be refuted, right? I mean, if you're just saying things that no one can disagree with, you're really not saying anything right. at all, right? Exactly. And, and, and like nobody would argue with the, the statement that we should build high performing teams by shortening the duration between when you write the software and ship the code. But the interesting stuff happens with the how, right? Like, okay, but how do we get there? And what are we willing to trade off? And what are we willing to sacrifice in exchange for that? And that's where, that's why what we do is so interesting, right? Because there's no one solution that you can just, you can't just hand someone a recipe book. You know, they've got their own company, they've got their own product, they've got their own users, they've got their own set of very difficult trade-offs to make. And, you know, you can't do that for them. So, well, so let's get into maybe a little more technical stuff now, because, you know, I, I'm friends with Ben over at Lightstep and Spoons and those guys. And uh, he actually had a Twitter thread that, that got a lot of traction because he was framing the observability monitoring sort of dialect as you can have your cake and eat it too. In other words, no, monitoring is actually still very important. And it may even be one of the most important pieces of observability. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I remember that thread. I loved it. I think I so do you, is, do you agree? Like, is, do you think these are two separate things? Do you think observability is some sort of like evolved monitoring or do you think they're, I think they're, I think they're different practices. I think that they have different constituencies, different, you know, people who, you know, consume them. Uh, I think they have different best practices, you know, which is, which is why from the very beginning, I was like, you can't, observability is different from monitoring. You can't confuse the two because, you know, for example, with monitoring, one of the best practices is you shouldn't have to look at graphs all day. The system should inform you when something is wrong and you need to go fix it, right? That's like, that, like for 15 years now, that's been a best practice. And with observability, it's like, it's the exact opposite. It's, you know, you should actually, as, as someone who's writing and shipping code, every time you ship code, you should you should go and like be in it up to your elbows, right? And like look at it every day and, and develop your, your gut instinct for is, is anything wrong? Is it behaving the way I want it to? Is, is my instrumentation telling me whether or not the code that I just wrote is doing what I expected it to or does anything look weird? You know, and those are, those are two very different best practices, both completely valid and both completely coexist for two different you know, sets of people. You know, for, it's for ops teams who are monitoring these, these giant systems, the question that they're asking themselves is, you know, is the system healthy, right? Is it, is it healthy? Do I need to provision more capacity? You know, is it, you know, from the perspective of the system, is, is everything okay? And then from the, for observability, it's from perspective of the developers who are standing in for the users, right? And they're saying, okay, I don't give a shit. I'm just gonna assume that the system's healthy, but from the perspective of my users, is my code doing what I expect it to? And is what is their experience like, right? So those are they're just two different constituencies, even though they may sometimes you know use overlapping tool sets, they're coming at it from completely different perspective. I hear you, and I, you know, that seems to be what the people that I respect the most in the industry on these topics are saying, but I can't help but feel sort of like I remember when I was at Datadog, you know, they were pretty squarely infrastructure monitoring and then new relic and app dynamics were doing more APM stuff. And eventually people just wanted one tool to do both. Right. And so each company acquired one or built stuff to sort of yeah. backfill those desires. And I wonder if you think ultimately the same thing will happen here, where if you're a traditional monitoring player, you probably will have to 
build some sort of observability or if you're honeycomb or light step like people if they love observability but they they do need some basic monitoring and alerting or whatever yeah. like they oh, yeah. want to use you for one we're day. absolutely seeing that convergence i mean you see that in the roadmaps for what light step and us are building you know we're in we're building more metrics capabilities etc um i do think that this is kind of this is the software version of, of the sort of great sort that is coming, that is happening, you know, just from a career perspective, which is, you know, every tech company used to have ops teams, right? And the ops teams were responsible for running the software that the software engineers would, would write, right? Um, but, you know, we've, we've seen this sifting for, for, for a long time now where most of, all of my ops teams, my ops team works for Amazon, right? Like they're, they're out there, you know, flipping, cables and turning on racks and, and all this stuff. And, and I'm completely abstracted from all that. I haven't driven to a code to flip a power switch in 10, 15 years and God willing, I never will again, right? Doesn't mean that that stuff is any less important or any less necessary. It's just, it's different, right? It's a different use case for different different users. And I think that what you're seeing in, you know, on, on the flip side is software engineers are increasingly expected to be, to, to they're the only ones who have any hope of debugging the code, code that they've just written, right? Um, and and to the extent that there are still like in-house ops teams, they're more they're more like SRE consultants, right? To help you understand how to build and and run reliable services. Um, so I see increasingly that um, the observability use case is going to dominate for for most most software companies because. You know, the, it's it's for the code that you're you're writing every day and changing every day and shipping every day, that that you're personally responsible for for your users, right? That's the observability use case, whereas the monitoring use case, you know, is is for people who are running infrastructure. It's for the people who are running the stuff that you want to 100% rely on, but not have to think about. Totally. I, I, one question I have for you too is, you know observability is a buzzword that has validity at its core. And then people are sort of like flies sort of being attracted to it. Whereas on the flip side, I want, I want to talk about sort of AI and the AI ops stuff for a second, because we did a resilience roundtable together um, either early 2021 or late 2020. can't remember exactly when it was, but um, I recommend people to go check that out. It's on the new stack and it's called the resilience roundtable. And we got into AI ops towards the end of the conversation. And I, I bring it up because almost everyone I talk to that's serious in this space sort of eye rolls every time they, they hear the word uh, to some extent, but yet, you know, very serious, like Gartner analysts, yeah. whatever, like are the main like pushers of, of this sort of AI, AI ops stuff. And you know, what, what is your feeling there? I mean, obviously things are becoming more automated, um, but what, what is this impulse to, to call it AI and, and how does it relate to observability as you see it? You know, there, there are so many, this is a really fascinating topic, I think, because there are so many sort of interwoven and overlapping things here. On the one hand, I think you could just say this is a difference of, a, of a definitions, right? Like technically anytime you write a line of code, you're AIing a thing, right? Like you're automating your AI. You can, you can, you can brush a whole bunch of shit under the rug by just like you know playing with definitions there. The 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 problem that I have with it, the the the, the bone that I will continue to pick is 
the way that the AI ops language and, and instead of assumptions tend to assume or they decenter the engineer who's solving problems, right? They say that, that you don't need the engineer to be in the driver's seat, that you can trust this other software. And, and, I, and for, for the foreseeable future that I can foresee, that is dead wrong. Right, and it's actually really dangerous. Like, and I get why it's so so you know sexy and appealing for like CTOs and CIOs who, for whom, and this was a shocker to me to realize that they actually trust their vendor relationships more than they trust their people. Right, because engineers come and go, come and go, but your vendor relationship lasts forever. And that was, oh, holy shit! That that really shocked me when I when I first realized it. And, and so they're always kind of looking for ways to decenter because it's a risk vector, right? Like when you have people who are necessary, it's a risk for your business. Um, but it's the way it is. Like these are socio-technical systems. Like think of it this way, like imagine the New York Times, right? Big sprawling website, you know, lots of smart people work there. Okay, so you take every, every all the engineers, and you ship them to Bahama to the Bahamas for a month-long offsite, and you replace them with another set of engineers who are equally qualified, equally sharp, equally senior, all this stuff, right? And then something breaks the next day. How long is it going to take that new set of people to to figure out how to log in, to figure out how to you know what the tools are, to re, you know like it's it will take them days if minimum, right? And that's because so much of the, these socio-technical systems lives in the heads of the people who write them and build them and ship them and run them and fix them every day like that's not a that's not an add-on <laughs> that's that's where this this is the source of truth right is in these people's heads and and you know you need to be very careful when you're swapping people out for each other so that you know you've got failover and you've got redundancy and all this shit you can't just you people are not replaceable in the same way that machines are and and that's where like this is why it really gets my dander up when people start talking about the AI up stuff because, because you know, for many reasons, and also like so many of the examples that they put out there, they're just like, you know, what if you have 50 million disc alerts and you need an AI, AI to read them because people can't. And I'm like, turn off the fucking disc alerts, you fucking moron. Like that's, you know, it's just like, you don't ship a bunch of shit in there and then like ask AIs to sort it all out. Like you think a little bit more intelligently about what you're shipping. Um, but but the real problem that I have with it is just this one where, where they just, they, they, they act like it is both achievable and preferable to take mm. the humans out of the equation. And yeah. I just don't see that as being accurate or feasible or, or correct in any way. I wonder if it has something to do, and, and it's not usually um, framed in this nuanced way, but I, I wonder if, if, you know, if AI ops relates to the difference between monitoring and observability, right? Like this idea that if you can predict it, right. maybe machines will be better at exactly. you know, catching it and fixing it. But in the world of observability, where these are new problems and, and new questions need to be asked in sort of real time, just that this whole concept of AI ops, it's just not there. I mean, who knows if it'll get there, but it's just not there, right? Exactly. Because every time you ship a new binary or you ship a new version, like you've changed the entire corpus of data that you were training your AI on, right? And and yeah, so well, I remember when in the Resilience Roundtable, Colton kind of brought up this point from a CEO of Gremlin, where he said, uh, whenever they tried to 
build some AI machine learning, it's like, great, now I've got two problems. I've got yep. the reliability problem and I've got the problem of training my okay. AI. So it's actually works and, and monitoring that and improving that. It's like a whole nother, it's not like you just flip a switch and, and here yeah. comes the magic. Your AI is only as good as the data corpus that you've trained it on, right? And if you're changing that corpus, I don't know, a dozen times a day, well, it's going to be kind of inherently suspect. So I think to wrap up, the, the most recent thing from Honeycomb uh, is a new I don't, a product maybe, or uh, called Refinery. Mm -hmm. And um, I, didn't, I didn't read too much about it because I figured I'd ask you about it. That was the most recent thing um, I saw from Honeycomb. So do you want to give listeners maybe a little uh, glimpse uh, of what that's about? It's basically, you know, it's 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 to help people out with with their sampling stuff. Um, now, sampling is not mandatory with Honeycomb. Lots of people don't do any sampling at all. But when you've got a lot of egress costs and you've got a lot of you know, it, it's just it's fundamentally <laughs> you do not care about the uh, two hundred OKs from your load balancer health checks as much as you care about errors to slash payments, right? And so you can get a lot of bang for your buck by just doing some really quick blunt, you know, sorting and choosing what you want to, you know, save forever. Um, and Refinery is meant to make that a very point and click, very easy, you know, sort of helper for that. Because, you know, if you're paying for the service, you know, your your job, your business is is not writing observability software, you know, and it's our job to make that as easy and as intuitive as it, as it can be for your team. Very cool. Well, uh, Charity, this has been fun. And uh, I should also mention, Yes. Um, uh, we have a really generous free tier. We have 60 days retention for everyone by default and a really good gateway drug to observability for almost everyone has been um, the build event stuff that one of our users came up with, which is just, if you have a CICD pipeline, you can add the build events to it and then you have to visualize your entire pipeline like a trace. So you can see where all the time from your tests is going. You can see where you could help by parallelizing some stuff. You could, you know, it's just a really, really fun, easy way spend half an hour, maybe an hour, and, and see where all that time is going and, and make your entire team's life much better for free. That's available in the free tier. Yeah. All right. You heard it from the source, honeycomb.io. Go check it out. Sign up and uh, follow Charity on Twitter. She has a lot of interesting thoughts and opinions, and uh, it's always a good time. So Charity, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam.